listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Welcome to the event, United Nations at 70, involving a panel discussion with Vinnie Bianjima, Valerie Amos and others. Uh, can I invite our panelists up to the stage, please, while I uh, set the scene? My name is Dan Plesch. I'm the director of the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy here at SOAS. Um, welcome to uh, the first of several events this weekend to mark the UN at 70. Uh, the center does research both on the history and origins of the UN, as you saw, and is also very much engaged with many of its staff in the UN today. Uh, this event uh, is followed tomorrow by uh, student-led seminars on uh, disarmament and the UN and other aspects of the UN, and you can find the details on our website. We are delighted that this evening is being done in partnership with the uh, UNA UK, um, and I will shortly uh, call upon their director to uh, introduce the panelists. Uh, just to say, the, uh, the centre is... Uh, a thriving uh, place for both research and teaching. I think we now have some 350 students in our uh, master's programs. Uh, we're delighted that uh, you can be with us uh, this evening. And without more ado, um, I'd like to uh, call on uh, uh, Natalie to uh, come and uh, uh, introduce the rest of the panelists. I can say uh, without, uh, hope she doesn't blush, but uh, uh, Natalie Saranasinghe uh, has uh, worked tirelessly in UNA UK for uh, uh, a decade now and we're delighted that uh, uh, she's well settled into the job of executive director and I think the way in which uh, uh, UNA UK has uh, grown and thrived in recent years is very much uh, down to her. So I hope you'll uh, join me in welcoming her. Natalie. Thank you very much, Dan, for that kind um, introduction. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am delighted to have the opportunity to say a few words to introduce what will be a fascinating discussion on the United Nations at 70. The UN has had a transformative impact on the world over the past seven decades. At an individual level, it has helped millions of people to improve their lives through health and education and to rebuild their lives after wars and disasters. At a global level, it has helped to eradicate deadly diseases such as smallpox, supported the peaceful transition to independence of many countries, and created international laws and standards on everything from human rights to aviation and food safety. Fundamentally, the UN represents our attempt, however imperfect, to learn from the Second World War and to build the concept of an international community that is expected to work together and to solve problems. I think the very fact that when we see a crisis unfolding or hear about a disaster, we say often quite critically, well, what is the UN doing about it? I think that's a sign of just how much we've come to expect it to act and to rely on it. For many people in the West, the development of a rules-based global order has delivered stability and prosperity. And I think the West has become accustomed to the UN providing a level of assistance to people in countries in a way that has often shielded it from the effects of crises in other parts of the world. Now that this system is under increasing strain, as multiple crises converge, as UN agencies run out of money, 
we are starting to see the effects on our doorstep. And I think our reaction in Britain has been, shall we say, not, not up to scratch. <coughs> we need to recognize that it is in our interest to support the UN and to ensure that it delivers for all countries and for all peoples so that they too have a stake in preserving it. UNA UK was founded in 1945 to make the case for the UN to British policymakers and the public. We are the voice of everyone in this country who cares about the UN. We are the ones who call out the UK government when it doesn't live up to its international obligations. We are the organization that encouraged the government, successfully I'm pleased to say, to re-engage with UN peacekeeping and to support moves to restrain the Security Council veto in the cases of mass atrocity. So we are a cheerleader for the UN, but we're also a watchdog and a critical friend. We recognize that the UN needs to change. One of our biggest campaigns at the moment is called One for Seven Billion, and it aims to change the secretive and outdated way in which the UN selects its Secretary General. But we also recognize that often it is not the UN but our governments that fail us. Across the world, political leadership is trapped in short-term national agendas, and the international compromises that made the UN possible in 1945 still appear costly today governments that are driven by narrow domestic concerns. I believe that in order to change this, we need to look at the motivations of the UN's founders. I often hear people speak very poetically about the purity of spirit that led to the creation of this idealistic organization. But I don't see the UN's creation as an aspirational endeavor. It was a very pragmatic response to conflict, weighing the downsides of compromise against the benefits of cooperation and the heavy cost of war. Today's event and tomorrow's workshop are excellent opportunities for challenging some of the founding myths of the United Nations, particularly the Western narrative that continues to prevail. Earlier this year, I worked on a collection of articles on the UN for SAGE publications and found a wealth of contributions from men and women from the global south, from Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit, the first female president of the General Assembly, I think there have only been three to date, to Carlos P. Romulo, the Philippines ambassador to the UN, who played a key role in shaping the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He very elegantly dismissed the whole question of cultural relativism in that process by saying that the declaration should respect popular customs and legal systems provided that they are not used to sanction outmoded social conventions, irrational taboos, or manifestly unjust dispositions of existing law. That's quite enough for me. We're extremely privileged to have with us today a highly distinguished panel that is rich in expertise and practical experience. Baroness Amos is Director of SOAS and was, from 2010 to 2015, UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. After a long and illustrious career in British government and parliament with posts including Secretary of State for International Development and advisor to the Mandela government on leadership and change management. Winnie Bianima is executive director of Oxfam International and a leading voice on women's rights, democratic government, uh, governance and peace building. She served for 11 years in the Ugandan parliament, worked for the African Union Commission and the UN Development Programme and founded the Global Gender and Climate Alliance. Tom Weiss is presidential professor at City University New York and a prolific author and leading thinker on pretty much all things UN. 
he's held positions with organizations including the International Peace Academy, the Academic Council on the UN System. He led the UN International, uh, Intellectual History Project, and he's currently co-directing two research initiatives, one on the future of the UN development system and one on the UN's wartime history with Dr. Dan Plesch. Dan is director of the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy at SOAS and the author of one of my favorite books, The Beauty Queen's Guide to World Peace. He's worked for think tanks, including the Royal United Services Institute, the British American Security Information Council, which he founded, and he's held academic posts in a number of universities and served as an advisor to the UK and US uh, governments. The panelists will be guided and challenged by UNA UK's chairman, Sir Jeremy Greenstock, who was Britain's ambassador to the UN from 1998 to 2003, which was, of course, a very turbulent period for the organization. He began his diplomatic career in 1969 with postings including Dubai, Washington, and Paris. He was UK special envoy to Iraq from 2003 to 2004 and director of the Ditchley Foundation before he joined UNA UK in 2010. So, Jeremy, over to you. Thank you, Natalie. Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, for the next uh, hour or more, we're going to get into some issues. But the purpose of this panel, uh, which has huge experience and distinction in UN issues, in international affairs, in the politics, as well as the economics and the social features of what the UN tries to do and what they have tried to do in the UN and in writing about the UN and in lobbying for the UN. But the purpose of our substance this evening is to some extent to set the scene for the seminar tomorrow here at SOAS, where you're going to be talking in greater detail uh, about the issues in front of the UN, about conflict and peacekeeping, about human rights, about sustainable development. Uh, but what we will try and do in the panel this evening with your contributions from the audience when the panel have had a chance to say a few things uh, is to look at the context for the UN, the changing geopolitical uh, world that we have to analyze afresh every time something big happens and which is running away with the pace of global change uh, in a way which uh, we find it very difficult, both as governments and as individuals, uh, to cope with, adjust to, uh, and do the right thing by. And I think we as a panel also are very conscious uh, that most of this audience is a lot younger than we are. And the legacy of certainly my generation to my children and my grandchildren is one which, to some extent, I think I'm going to be ashamed of, in that my generation from 1945 onwards, two years after I was born, is one in which the increase in freedom, personal freedom of choice, prosperity, uh, and individual initiative has been the greatest of any generation in history. And yet we are likely to pass on to the next generations a world which won't have those increases in freedom and prosperity without a lot of things going right 
that are not going right at this moment. One of them, of course, is the emission of carbon into the atmosphere, which will change the climate. Another of them is the burden of debt, which the global economies have accumulated up to 2008, and which we're struggling to adjust to now. And the third is the whole set of relationships, not just between the great powers, but between 193 member states of the United Nations, who have the moral authority of being equal, but who are not equal in terms of the power and the instruments they have at that, their disposal, are not equal in the sense of their reading of history over the last century, and particularly the 70 years since 1945, and are not equal in their access to the resources, the space, uh, and the instruments that they need for the prosperity and good health of their communities into the next generations. And that is what we need to talk about because the context for the UN, and particularly the context that you're going to be talking about tomorrow of the North and the South of 1945 and 2015, of the haves and the have-nots, uh, and the political resentments that the differences between them and between the nature of the world in 45, the nature of the world now, which we've tried quickly to illustrate to you, are sets of issues which have to be thought about in a way which has not happened up to now. Let me put it to you this way, that the long period of peace at the global level, which we've experienced, with obviously many blips at the regional level, since 1945, is one which will not be sustained unless we do something unprecedented. Because every period of peace previously has ended in a bad war. What is unprecedented about the circumstances of 2015 is that nuclear weapons exist and war cannot be afforded because it will threaten the destruction of mankind and everything alongside it on the planet. But secondly, to be more optimistic about the future, it is unprecedented that we have a global institution uh, as proficient uh, and as well established as the United Nations to be the forum for peace amongst governments and to service the global community in all the ways in which the funds, programs, agencies, and secretariat of the UN do. We need to explore that, see what has gone wrong, what has gone right, see what we need to preserve, how we can reform it and bring it into the next generation, and tap the experience of our panel uh, to give you an indication, you, many of whom will be the leaders of the next generation, to say what you have got to focus on to make the UN deliver what it's there to deliver for your generation, not just for ours, in terms of peace, human rights, and sustainable development. Let's get into some of the features of that. And perhaps, Winnie, if I may turn to you uh, as a child of Africa, 
uh, as somebody who's watched very carefully what has happened to your country, your continent, your environment, now finds yourself, you find yourself uh, director of a, a very well-established and very well-performing uh, global NGO uh, centered in uh, the United Kingdom in Oxford. Um, what do you look for from the United Nations to sustain the framework for the development work, the humanitarian work, uh, and indeed, as you are well aware in all of that, the political uh, work that needs to be done to make the Oxfam contribution to global development, particularly in the developing world, sustainable uh, and effective. What more are you looking from the UN for to achieve that dream? Well, thank you. And first I must say how delighted I am to be invited here and for Oxfam to speak with the students at SOAS and to be part of this distinguished panel. And thank you for calling me a child of Africa. Because indeed, I look at the United Nations very much from that lens. And at 70, I begin with celebrating. As an African, I celebrate the United Nations. And as a woman, I celebrate the United Nations for its achievements. As you know, when the United Nations was founded, my father, who was alive then, and people of his generation, were not part of it. They were colonial people. They had no rights, no nationality. They were subjects of colonial rule. One third of the population of the world, I think about 800 or so million people, were non-people. But the United Nations played an important role in accelerating the road to independence by affirming the principle of self-determination so we, we celebrate, and many countries in the South hold on to that platform as that enduring place where they achieve, where equality can be exercised, however frustrating it can be. Secondly, as a woman, I mean, the United Nations, even before it was created, the precursor, the League of Nations, as you know, when it was being founded, women at that time, in the 1920s could see that while the world was coming together to end war and violence through intergovernmental collaboration, women wanted peace and ending war, but also saw the opportunity for advancing women's rights beyond national borders and to use intergovernmental process to advance their rights. So you had women like Vera Britton, a pacifist from this country, and many women around the world who came together and influenced the United Nations Charter and enshrined in there the equality of men and women. And today, look, we've had four world conferences on women's rights, starting with Mexico in 1975 through to Beijing in 1995. We have an elaborate system of, of rights of women rules, standards to govern with equality, anti-discrimination. And every woman in every country can hold on to those and challenge their government, challenge companies. So I celebrate for 
many of those achievements as a woman from the South from Africa. But turning to your point about what do we want now from the United Nations, where is it failing us? Well, let me give you one example from disarmament. Just under a year ago, on 24th December 2014, to be precise, the Arms Trade Treaty became international law. After 10 years of activism, and Oxfam was a big part of that, we campaigned to have this arms trade controlled. We got the treaty. Finally, it was signed. This country, Britain, was one of the first ones to sign on. The United States, which we didn't expect to sign on, also did. And this treaty seeks to bring arms, uh, the, the trade of arms, the export and the import of arms under control, under the provisions of international humanitarian law and human rights law. But what's happening now? The will to take it to implementation is lacking. Today, despite everything, the world has kept arming Syria. For four years, we have seen the use of all kinds of weapons, ballistic mi missiles, bombs, rockets, shells, mortars, raining down on towns and cities in Syria. Yemen, the same. Because of this destruction, Oxfam has been supporting the Aust Austrian government initiative to negotiate a declaration on the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. This is going on. I hope it will become part of the rules against, uh, uh, to govern the war, war is conducted. But what hurts me most is that the very countries that signed on to this arms trade treaty, whom we walked with all the way to its, its uh, coming into force, are the same ones violating it. And I'm not afraid to tell you that the UK itself is among the countries that continues to sell arms to Saudi Arabia that are being used to kill civilians, to destroy infrastructure across Yemen. This is despite them signing the ATT and forgetting their commitments under the ATT, the Arms Trade Treaty. So we are seeking the political will of countries to implement these norms that they sign. This is just in the area of disarmament. I'm sure we'll go on to talk about development, the Sustainable Development Goals, signed only a week ago, two weeks ago, fantastic framework, but with challenges of its implementation, which we can talk to later. It's about the will of member states to have faith in this platform and use it. And for people in the South, this is what we have that guarantees equality of nations, where we can resolve problems, whether of human rights, security, or development, or humanitarian issues. And we want member states to have the commitment. I will stop there. Thank you, Winnie. Tom, you've written analytically and powerfully as, as much as any expert observer uh, about the United Nations. I, I'm going to probe you for what you think is, is missing at this moment. The, the great democracies are great democracies only in their domestic context. They are not behaving democratically at the global level. Uh, there is a power struggle going on 
between north and south, between different parts of the, of, of the global system, and the UN is squeezed within that. Do you think the UN is, is fading at this moment? What, what are you looking for to be regenerated in the United Nations? Well, thanks, Jeremy. <clears throat> Let me begin by saying, uh, like winning, how pleased I am to be here. I've been here for three years as a visitor and enjoying every moment of it. And I'm also puzzled that on a Friday night at 7.30 with all these pubs in the area, there are <laughs> students in this room. And someone last week asked me, how, you know, how could you possibly be interested in the UN? And I began with a pat story about being an intern at the ILO in 19 whatever. And then I suddenly stopped in the midst of this and thought, wait a minute, I was conceived during the San Francisco conference and I was born in early 1946 while the General Assembly was in its first session. So I think it's kind of in mother's milk. So, anyway, the organization as it exists, um, the meeting that we're holding is going to be looking at north-south issues. Um, and my own experience in the system as a staff member for 10 years uh, happened to be in Geneva with the, um, in the bomb-throwing days of UNCTAD and the new international economic order, etc. And as I look back on that period, it was a very, very interesting moment because the conversation changed, the South found a voice, the agenda changed. I think the problem since, however, has been that we, the only way the United Nations can possibly set up a conversation is having these rather large blocks, which, to go back to your original comments, no longer represent what they represented at the area of decolonization when the UN's agenda was totally Western-driven. So. Um, it seems to me that one of the real problems, and you were in the fishbowl in New York, one of the real problems is that there is much theater which serves as an excuse for not having a serious conversation. And so it seems that over time, what the real, uh, I think the real challenge is to break down um, artificial barriers and have a serious conversation about what are in the interests of countries and what are in the of some of the people at the bottom in those countries. And it seems to me that what's happened over time is that this theater, North-South theater, has replaced what could be a serious conversation about the real haves and have-nots in both sets of society and what we might do about it. So that would be my agenda for the future. Can, can I just, Jeremy, can I, can I just pick up on, on some of what uh, uh, Tom said? Because um, uh, I agree, but I also think that there are some more fundamental things in that. Um, because uh, I think that part of the problem uh, that we have at the UN is that we're never quite sure which UN we're talking about. So people say the UN with expectations of the UN, and actually very often the disappointment is a disappointment uh, in relation to the inability to resolve some very fundamental political challenges that we face uh, in our world. Um, and also for the UN to live up to uh, the passion and the expectation that we all have that there is a kind of moral authority uh, that exists 
uh, and that there is a kind of a system of global justice and rules uh, that actually apply to everyone. Uh, and a very strong feeling when you actually see what is delivered, particularly out of the Security Council, uh, but when all of the member states uh, come together and are unable to agree, that somehow the sum of the UN is much less than the individual parts. So you will see strong advocacy from uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights. You'll see some very strong adv advocacy on the humanitarian side. But uh, then you look at the practicalities on the ground, um, a Syria war that has waged for five years and uh, where the Security Council, because of a degree of political paralysis, has not actually managed to uh, uh, get uh, a resolution or any kind of uh, transitional process. So, you know, millions of people have fled. The pressure that's being put on uh, neighboring countries. Uh, you look at what is happening uh, with uh, the conflict in uh, Yemen, for example, the crises in uh, parts of uh, the African continent, and a real feeling that somehow what we are looking for from the United Nations, and I say this as someone who is a passionate multilateralist, who absolutely believes in the work of the United Nations, but recognizes that very often what is being looked for uh, from the UN, the UN does not deliver for a huge variety of reasons on the political side. And that is very often where people are talking about the failures and not recognizing, as we saw in that second film uh, that we saw, you know, the huge amount of work that is being done day in, day out, to actually to keep our world safe, to keep people uh, alive, uh, to make sure that the kind of development agenda that uh, uh, Winnie alluded to, that all of that is happening day in, day out. Valerie, you spent four years as... Five, actually. Five years as emergency <laughs> relief coordinator. I have to say five because I did 18 months longer than any of my predecessors, um, and I said it took a woman to do it. <laughs> so. Where did you feel the accountability was? To, to whom were you accountable? And where did, where did the accountability chain begin to break down? Because governments in capitals, in terms of their ministers, are very rarely in New York. Permanent representatives are there, and their relationships get all sorts of things done that wouldn't be done if the organization didn't exist. But governments are not there. They're at a distance. And I always found that the, the whole concept of accountability was just missing in the UN system. Did you feel that as a practitioner? Um, when I went into the UN, I certainly would not have put accountability at the top of my agenda necessarily as the thing um, that I would become most passionate about. But by the time I left uh, the UN, uh, accountability was very much at the top of my agenda because I felt that uh, 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 countries uh, sign up to a, a whole host of uh, commitments that they don't deliver on, that the principles and values of the Charter, which are the things that, that people are supposed to hold dear, are being undermined at every turn, that uh, uh, countries uh, do not hold each other accountable uh, for the violations uh, that uh, they uh, uh, make every single day. I watched as the whole framework, for example, of 
international human rights and humanitarian law that has been developed um, and put in place, you know, on the back of a lot of uh, suffering and campaigning uh, in the world, I watched as uh, those rights were basically being trampled on and the issue of uh, state sovereignty being used constantly um, as an excuse for, in, for inaction. So I do think that uh, accountability has to be at the top of our agenda. And you said, who did I feel accountable to? Um, you know, ultimately, I felt accountable to the people that I saw um, who, you know, day in, day out, were being, uh, 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 had their own governments um, uh, very often uh, firing on them, uh, their own governments uh, uh, attacking them. Um, I felt that I needed to be a voice uh, on behalf of uh, those people. And I spent a lot of time, you know, going out and talking uh, to people so that I was able to talk about what I saw and the things that uh, people talked uh, to me uh, about. But I do feel that that accountability uh, mechanism is missing, and I feel that it's up to all of us to remember that the UN Charter starts with three very important words, we the people. Um, and that means it's our UN, and it means that it's our campaign to make the kind of UN that we want to see. Thank you. Dan, you keep a particularly close eye on the disarmament agenda, but you look a lot wider than that. Do you feel that the UN has always lacked the instruments of implementation? They come to agreements and things are not done. Or treaties are drafted, and countries will not sign up to them and ratify them, and if they do, they don't implement them. Is there, was there something lacking in the Charter on the implementation and enforcement front that has made the UN too toothless? Well, the Charter is, of course, very strong. There's a military committee in the Charter, and disagreements have meant that from the beginning it never happened, although we all like to, Brits always like to quote Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill said in the famous Fulton speech that the Royal Air Force should be handed over to the authority of the Security Council with the sole proviso that it not bomb Britain. Um, and that was before he got onto the bit about the Berlin Wall, uh, about the, the Iron Curtain. Uh, what's interesting is that at that point in history, he thought it was necessary to play to an American political audience by making that point in a public uh, speech. Uh, there are, of course, many treaties that aren't implemented. One that was, very usefully, was the Chemical Weapons Convention, which uh, arguably helped defuse an even worse situation in Syria. The fact that we had it and it was on the shelf. And I think if we look at uh, positive contributions from disarmament treaties, that is a, is a standout one. The agreement just reached with Iran which, you know, in common with every other agreement I've ever seen, and you too perhaps, every realist said was an impossible dream, would never be signed, up until the ink was on the paper. The Iran agreement, I think, is uh, a great example of what can be achieved, and from that, what we can build upon. But if I could say the one thing that stands out to me in the present crises 
is that really for the first time since the Tsar of Russia helped convene the first Hague conferences before the First World War, you have looming international crises and no discussion of disarmament and confidence-building measures at all. That's what we've been doing just this week in New York, is try to reintroduce the idea of general disarmament and enforcing many of the agreements that could have wider application. Because... I think the founding idea that we have to wrestle with in the UN is that the founders saw that we needed to cooperate out of realist necessity. I think for the theoretical people here that uh, Hobbesians had to become Kantians out of necessity and realized that cooperation was essential. And if there's one lesson, I think it is that the self-destructive potential of industrial society that we saw with the two world wars and the bomb and now with climate change means that we have to understand that cooperation is essential. But that tension is at the heart of national and international society as to whether we can develop a post-atomic political consciousness, what I would call an Einstein realism, rather than these traditional and obsolete constructions of realism. Thank you. Winnie, let's, let's get a little bit further into uh, the development agenda. Um, I think we have to say that the Millennium Development Goals, 10 years old now, uh, have achieved perhaps as much as we could ever have expected from them. They have not, in every sense, been a disappointment. They have changed people's views of the primacy of development of the right kind. Do you think that the Sustainable Development Goals from 2015 onwards can match that? Do you have high hopes for the SDGs? And what are you looking for to make the whole development agenda more productive in terms of changing the social and economic circumstances of the less advantaged countries? Well, I think the United Nations record on the development agenda is really mixed and the Sustainable Development Goals could be historic if, but only if, certain things happen. And I'm afraid there are many contradictions within the United Nations that may not allow this, this framework that has been embraced by governments, business, civil society, everybody, to really deliver on its promise to leave no one behind. As, this, as the promise is to leave no one behind, not just to reduce poverty, but to eradicate poverty and eradicate hunger forever. Huge ambition. But I fear. Why do I fear? I fear because the United Nations is an organization where every member has one vote, is equal, and where this important, these important goals have been adopted. But when I look at where influence on countries' economic direction is, I see it elsewhere. And I see two big challenges for the Sustainable Development Goals. One is that unless we can reverse this widening gap between the rich and the poor, economic inequality, we will not be able to lift everyone out of poverty. And how can we, re that's one. The other challenge is that of climate change. Unless we can tackle climate change, stop global warming, give opportunity to people 
in poor countries, poor people to adapt to a low carbon path and protect themselves from the current impacts already, impacts of climate change, will not achieve the goals. But how can we achieve them unless we can put every country on a path of, very, of sustainable, inclusive growth? And how can that happen when the economy is shaped primarily by institutions, international financial institutions that are supposed to be part of the United Nations, the IMF and the World Bank, but that don't do human rights. This is, the framework is a human rights framework. It's about rights of everyone, right to food, to, to, to water, to health. But the organizations that shape economic policy, economic thinking, are not themselves committed to the Charter of Human Rights of the United Nations and do their work, pursue an economic model that is not necessarily respectful of human rights, that pursues growth for growth's sake, growth that does not factor in the environment, the women's rights, the rights of minorities. So unless economic <clears throat> thinking changes, unless we tackle rising economic inequality from a human rights perspective, these goals will not be achieved. So for Oxfam, we see a contradiction here. Unless the Bretton Woods institutions could also change their thinking, change their economic models, and base them on the human rights charter, we will continue to have this tension where economic direction actually undermines the rights of the weak, the vulnerable, poor people. So that, that is for us a big challenge. And Oxfam continues to challenge this. I'm just coming back from Lima at the World Bank and IMF meetings, and I see that now they are talking about economic inequality. Not from a human rights perspective like us in Oxfam and NGOs, they are saying that it hurts long-term growth. And we are saying that's good, that's good progress. Let's talk about that. Can we reverse it in the interest of long-term growth? That's also good for us. So we are getting into uh, finding common ground, but we are not there yet. Their lending, their policy advice is not yet pro-human rights. That's the challenge. Jeremy, can I just... I was going to ask you to comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, two things. Um, I mean, I, I agree with just about everything that Winnie said. But there's one thing that I, I don't agree with, um, Winnie. I agree that everyone has a vote in the General Assembly. Mm. But every member of the UN is not equal. Mm. And if we don't accept that, um, if we don't accept the fact that, that, that not only the fact that countries come to the United Nations sometimes with very narrow national interests, uh, but also that the, the degree of influence and power that nations are able to exercise at the United Nations is constrained uh, by a whole range of other factors, uh, including the fact that you have a Security Council and uh, uh, five members of that Security Council with a veto, which in no way reflects uh, uh, power and regional dynamics in the modern world, then... Uh, the, the future of the UN, I think, um, and, and how it's able to exercise its authority uh, becomes undermined. 
Then your second point about the international financial institutions. One of the things that I always say about the United Nations is that in the modern world, the United Nations is not constrained by, because of the vision of its founders, it's actually constrained by the way the members currently use that vision. And the same applies to the international financial institutions. It is not that the international financial institutions cannot do human rights. If you look back at their mandate, mm. um, the issues with respect to economic uh, and other rights are absolutely there. We have allowed them to get away with not using their influence and power to create a more just and equal world. So actually, we are as culpable because we have allowed them over the years to develop and grow and run with an agenda that runs counter to a human rights uh, agenda. Uh, and we have to take a degree of responsibility for that because we have not pushed and we have not pushed our governments to ensure that the votes that they're able to exercise in those IFIs actually take on board the mandate that those IFIs had, those international financial institutions had when they were founded. Can I come in on that? You're so, you're so right. But you have to look at how the, you have to look at the governance. Because the IFIs are not structured like the United Nations. A poor country like Uganda, which borrows from the World Bank and the IMF, doesn't have the same vote as the United States, which puts money in the World Bank and the IMF. They are structured as corporations. The ones who put in the money have the bigger voice. So the IFIs are not governed the way the United Nations is governed. So that is part of the problem, the governance of the economic institutions. But it's more, it's, it's even more than that. Because take the case of trade. Trade is regulated by the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization doesn't look at trade from a human rights perspective. It's not about trade for development. It's trade, global trade, enabling global trade. It's not an agenda, again, that's linked to the human rights of the United Nations. And now let me give you the example that really bothered me. In July, we were in Addis Ababa at a UN meeting on financing for development. This was a meeting to this to work out how will we finance the sustainable development goals? How will we put the money down for this ambitious agenda? The developing countries, group of 77, came behind the idea of having a global corporate tax body because the global corporate tax system is a cake. It's like 90 years old. It was created at a time when Countries didn't trade with each other. Technology hadn't moved in the direction it is now. It's got gaping loopholes that companies use to cheat on the taxes. Make wealth in one country, put it, move the profits in another country, and not pay their fair share. So developing countries said, let's have, within the United Nations, a global corporate tax body to ensure tax cooperation, to ensure that all our countries get their fair share of taxes from multinationals. Now, within the last few years since the financial crisis, the richer countries came together in order to tackle austerity and started in their own process within the OECD 
to tackle this tax injustice. And they've moved forward and they've made some rules and they are going to be able to share information and regulate companies between themselves. But this, on the, in this discussion, the majority of countries, two-thirds, are locked out. Developing countries want the discussion within the UN. The richer countries say, no, it won't be efficient. We can manage it outside in the OECD. They are running away with the process that excludes the poor countries. So we keep seeing the United Nations being a platform that richer countries avoid, create parallel structures where they resolve problems for themselves, and the poorer countries remain with faith in the United Nations, but the United Nations mandate is taken away to other institutions. This is an issue. I'm going to come to the audience in a, in a minute. I just want to follow up that thought by looking perhaps particularly at the, the UN leadership on, on issues, and we, we have to look at the United States. Tom, I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to have a crack <laughs> at the UK as sheltering behind the United States in some ways. But here is a country that has actually given us a free world, more than any other country responsible for global freedom. The most generous country in terms of development, if you take public and private sector together, but the public sector is not wholly responsible for that, to say the least. But uh, I, I come back to my comment on passant about democracy at home and autocracy internationally. Do you think that the people of the United States who aren't actually antagonistic to the United Nations, when I was at the UN, the polls for the UN were higher in the US than in the UK, to my chagrin as UK ambassador. So the, the, the American people are not ungenerous and they're not antagonistic, uh, but politics is, is politics. But is there going to be leadership from the United States in using the United Nations over the next generation to be the focus of multilateral action where the egalitarian and meritocratic nature of the 21st century world is going to be recognized? No. <laughs> I suppose you'd like some more details. I'm now going to turn to the audience. <laughs> but I'd like to just take an important part of your earlier question, I think, got lost, which is that some people poo-poo goal setting. And I actually think that the, the effort to set the Millennium Development Goals had a positive impact in lots of places. And one of the reasons that it did was that there were only a few of them, and the targets were measurable and time-bound. And at the risk of sort of swearing in church, I think the SDGs are really totally the opposite. And you were worried earlier about accountability. The only accountability, I think, that the UN disposes of is embarrassment, or embarrassing developed countries and developing countries for not performing. That's really the only weapon. And I, I'm, I'm really concerned that in the SDGs, it's going to be, there's no sense of priorities, there's no sense of sequencing. We haven't agreed on any measurable elements as yet. And so I'm really um, less enthusiastic uh, than I would have been. On the U.S., um, 
One of the <laughs> delightful things about going back in history in this project that we were involved in on the wartime origins was looking at the United States when it had really quite a different approach toward international cooperation. Actually, a good friend, Ed Luck, has written a book called Mixed Messages in which he basically plots U.S. attitudes towards the U.N., starting with Wilson, and we go up and down, and there's this roller coaster ride. Um, and interestingly, as you mentioned, public opinion polls in the United States are generally supportive. It's always in the area of 60%, but this is, in my view, a kind of um, mile-wide and inch-deep support uh, because the, the, the population immediately um, discounts everything that goes on. Uh, you know, Security Council is hopeless, the humanitarian arena is hopeless, and it's on and on. So, and no politician, the real political problem in the United States is that there's no payoff from supporting the UN. I mean, I, I might pick up one vote, and by being in favor of it, I pick up a whole lot of negative things. So politicians in campaigns never even address the issue. The last set of presidential debates four years ago, it was not mentioned. It didn't come up at all. I would be flabbergasted if it came up at all during whenever we get through. But you talk about it in British elections? No. We tried to to make every political party address this in the last election. We got them to write out manifestos for us on foreign affairs. In the hustings and uh, in the debates, it appeared not at all during the British election. Absolutely absent. But, we, but, but, but elections, elections are fought on domestic issues. Yeah, I mean, right. that, that everywhere, everywhere. So we all care, we all care about you know, global issues. Uh, and of course, they have a huge, global issues have a huge domestic impact. But the reality is that uh, we don't have the global leadership uh, on those foreign policy issues. And then what you end up with is what we're seeing in the UK and across Europe now, which is a kind of panic uh, about uh, refugee issues, for example, uh, and the fact that actually the, the impact of um, a lack of engagement on certain issues at an earlier stage has resulted in what we are seeing today, and there's a panic that this has become part of a domestic agenda. Um, uh, uh, so I don't think it's just the United States. Mm. I, think, yeah, uh, I, uh, I think this is... Uh, 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 and one other thing about the Global South issue is that I do think that... Um, uh, if you come from uh, a developing country, you're much more likely to be engaged in global issues, actually, yes. than if you come from the north. Perhaps even, even too much so. You know, you have politicians in many developing countries look too much to the international, hope too much in the international community to bring solutions. I think that a little less faith in an international solution and more faith in their own solutions could help some countries. But what I wanted to share here is that the, the United Nations is a platform which, as I said, developing countries strongly believe in and, and constantly seek solutions there. But the concern, the increasing concern, 
is that solutions are being sought in new formats. G20 is a format that increasingly G7 started, then G20. They are all formats that seem to be intended to give more voice to emerging economies, to countries that are now powerful but don't have power within the UN, to share some power with those who won the Second World War. And increasingly, all this seems to take power away from the common platform for all. I think there's an issue there. I think the common platform is seizing it back, and governments feel they're losing control. Dan, before I open up, anything else you wanted to put into oh, Let's get people in. Right. <laughs> I haven't been told that there are microphones, so I'm going to look at there are microphones, so wait for the microphone to come to you. I will take questions in groups of, of two or three and see how they go. There's uh, a lady in a grey uh, cardigan there. Okay. Thank you very much. I'll take uh, more questions. I don't... Can't see. Will you see any hands? There's one down the front on the left here. How do, how do you I, have a <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't see it. <laughs> Raise your hand. Where are you? <laughs> there you are. You're using it. Good. I, I, I thought that it was a very interesting discussion. Well, it sounded a bit like Davos rather than Solar, and it's a rather status quo conversation we're having. I mean, the question is whether the UN is fit for purpose at 70, and it's clearly not because it rep re re represents a system of global apartheid. You have Britain and France which are middle powers pretending to be great powers, which should not be members of the US Security Under any circumstances. They may have been great powers in 45. They are not in 2015. They need to get off, and you need to bring countries like Brazil, India, South Africa, Nigeria, so that its legitimacy 
is not eroded. There is no reason why Britain should control the humanitarian affairs, France peacekeeping, and the US political affairs in the UN, and why those three countries should be drafting 80 to 90 percent of the Security Council resolution. We need to look at those issues. Today, Asians and Africans are the ones doing most of the peacekeeping in the world, and we call ourselves the United Nations. The World Bank and the IMF are headed by an American and a European after 70 years, as if there's some sort of genetic disposition that allows them to do that. So I, I think we need to deal with those issues. And then I want all of you to just put your support behind a woman for Secretary General after eight men. And the lady down on the second row. Hi. Um, yes, it's working. Um, so I'd like to ask a bit of a more practical question as opposed to a generally theoretical question about the UN. Um, so I would like to know your opinions on how to tackle the ever-reoccurring dilemma in negotiations uh, between a solution um, for, you know, say a convention or a declaration that is less ambitious and a dialogue that includes all member states, including um, the richer countries, um, or uh, as opposed to uh, a solution that is more ambitious and um, may resonate uh, more strongly in the world, but is most certainly going to be a dead letter um, affair. And as, as uh, when you said, the examples are varied and um, where countries will know that they might even ratify them, but will then not implement them so that they can politically say that. So how do you think, where do we stand and how can we really um, get to the bottom of, of having the lowest common denominator in, in these type of agreements, but still manage to achieve something. Thank you. Okay, we'll take those three and take, take it round the panel, whatever you want to pick up. Dan, do you want to have first go at yes, any I, of those? I want to come to the question of UN reform, which I think is excellently put. Uh, the two points I want to make. First is if you look at practical reform agendas, there's one suggestion I lobbed out in the previously mentioned book, which I would leave you with, which is that in democracies, we should directly elect, as a national electorate, the internationals. At the moment, we have a medieval system in this country where we elect from the city or the shire to Westminster. That was fine in Magna Carta times, but we don't elect, as a people, the representatives to go alongside Sir Jeremy as the perm rep a permanently elected person at the UN, at the IMF, and the rest. And working around these institutions as an NGO and as a member of the media for many years, when the politicians aren't there, everything is asleep. When the politicians are there, the organization comes alive. Now you can say the politicians are corrupt, uh, democracy doesn't help. Well, on balance, I think I would favor a democratic solution to an autocratic one. If you're actually looking for mechanisms of change when you've got the idiosyncrasies of Britain and British and French membership, then you can go through all sorts of formulae. 
about reform and they get discussed and turned down and the Americans are happy to say, oh, we'd love to see India on and they know full well that the Pakistanis will never allow it, etc., etc., and, and uh, the Chinese will block it, uh, Japan and so forth. But if you start at the grassroots and say, our platform is, and if you're in a list system of parties like you have in continental Europe, you can put on the list who is going to represent us internationally, and then you start to have a decentralized global cabinet in countries, and actually you have representation of your politician at the institution, not leaving it to the official. But I just do want to say something about the current Security Council. We all learn and teach that, oh, this represents the balance of power in 1945. Nonsense. In 1945, one country had all the money and the bomb. Realist theory should have said that the United States should have bombed Moscow shortly after Hiroshima and given the political uh, constituency in the United States predominantly have imposed a white supremacist uh, rule on the planet. That didn't happen, partly because the political dynamics in the West and colonies at the time wouldn't perhaps have stood for it. But at the time, China, uh, Britain, France, Russia were all bankrupt and incredibly weak. The dynamics that brought even what we have today is remarkable, and particularly having China as an Asiatic country in the Security Council in 45 was an incredibly radical act in the politics of that time. And we tend to forget that. I'm not supporting the current disposition, but it, uh, in the time it was far more radical and far more multilateral than we tend to think of it as. Valerie, what would you like to take up? Um, I don't believe in lowest common denominator negotiation. Um, I think if we can't be aspirational at the UN, where can we be aspirational? Um, and yes, it, take, um, it does take time uh, for countries to get to those aspirations, uh, to deliver uh, on what's required, and I think we need more accountability to hold uh, uh, countries' feet to the fire. Um, but I think that, um, I think that, that, you know, if we are talking about um, the failure of aspects of the United Nations, then I do think that, you know, years of negotiation to come to a lowest common denominator would be uh, uh, one of the problems that I would put uh, up there on the agenda. I think we have to be, we have to go for ambition. If we don't go for ambition, then we are, in a way, you know, saying to the people of the world who actually need a United Nations that stands up for social justice, equality. I mean, we wouldn't have had an ICC if we weren't, uh, ambitious about issues of, of, of having uh, a rules-based global justice system, for example. And yes, it has all kinds of problems and challenges, but there is a system of global uh, justice. Um, is the UN fit for purpose in terms of its governance? No, it's not. Um, but I do think that every time we focus on sec just Security Council reform, that we basically get ourselves into um, uh, uh, a kind of uh, narrow way of looking at, at, at UN reform. And it becomes the thing that every, the sort of totem that everybody uh, waves and other uh, reforms that could create a wave that would perhaps then lead to reform of the Security Council uh, doesn't happen. Um, and yes, um, uh, uh, a woman for Secretary General, absolutely. Um, on the, uh, and there are a lot of women in the frame, which is a, a great thing. Um, on the, uh, uh, on the role of the private sector, I'm not sure I, I 
I, I really understood uh, the question. Um, uh, I, I do think that it's important to have a much more inclusive agenda. There is no way that, given the challenges uh, and the complexity uh, of the challenges that we face um, across our world, that we can't bring in every single partner to help to work on these issues. Um, so I think that uh, having a more inclusive agenda is really important. Willie, would you like to say yeah. something about the private sector? Yeah, I would like to say something about the role of the private sector, but also about legitimacy of the United Nations. On the role of the private sector, I too was quite disturbed at the Sustainable Development Summit. The, the whole summit was a, a walls between companies and governments going to do this together and achieve this together. And it's fine. I think we need the private sector. We need their resources, the technology, the innovation, although they are not the only innovators, even though they often want to sound like innovation comes just from companies, but it comes from universities, it comes from NGOs, it comes from everywhere. But what was lacking, and from our Oxfam perspective, is that the role of the private sector in development, we're talking now of using public resources, people's taxes, to leverage the big resources of the private sector, but still there is no clear, no clear rules of the game for the private sector's role in achieving the sustainable development goals. It's only a discussion about we need them in, we will use taxpayers' money to leverage resources from the private sector. We will have blended resources. There's new language about how development will be financed, and it's all about putting people's money, taxpayers' money, together with the money from the private sector and blending the private motive, profit motive, with the motive of the common good. And the rules for the private sector are not on the table. So before I left New York, I tried to talk with senior people in the United Nations, and what I found was that they are getting ready to sit down to develop an accountability framework for the sustainable development goals, and that's all about how governments will account and how we in civil society will chase them up to, to hold them to the, feet, the fire to their feet and, 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 and ask them to be honest. But the framework for the corporate sector isn't there yet. So there's a real challenge there, and we are going to be on their case. The last point on, leg the point on legitimacy, I just want to say that. Can I share this <coughs> anecdote? The whole system of the United Nations is not functioning well, is under challenge on this issue of legitimacy. And for the same reason, those who hold more power within the United Nations then say that the system isn't working well, let's find a solution somewhere else. Mm. It's terrible. So, but the solution is to democratize it and then make it more efficient. But we are seeing shifting away from it because it's polarized, but it's polarized because it's being contested. When the world, and, and uh, for Valerie, it's, it's not about just Security Council reform. It's about reform of the IFIs themselves. It's about reform of different parts. When the United States put forward the candidacy of Jim Kim for the World Bank, 
and Nigeria and Africa put forward the candidacy of Ngozi Iwela. There were two candidates, both strong with different sets of skills, but one challenging the dominance of the United States within the World Bank. There was an opportunity there for the world to say, this is not going to always be controlled by the, by the United States. But that opportunity was lost and the governance system preserved. Ngozi could have been the candidate that breaks that mold. But I think the challenge is there, the challenge is real, and until we respond, we're going to keep seeing mandates going out of the UN to other platforms. Tom, you want to pick up on reform? Or? Can I do two very quick things, Jeremy? The, the first is I think um, the private sector is not a solution to everyone's problems, obviously. It's the condi conditions under which you mobilize the private sector. I think to come to our discussion of this evening, the, the role of the UN, the problem is that the UN is a totally ODA-driven system. Uh, it doesn't get money except for UNICEF on occasion, uh, money from anywhere else. Uh, and I don't believe that people within the UN understand the crisis is coming because the UN share of ODA, multilateral ODA, has gone from 22% to about 10% in the last 12 to 13 years. You're not, and, you're not totally correct. Well, that, I mean, if you look at humanitarian, for example, it gets 5% of the money from the regular budget. It has to raise the rest. The rest. But, but it has the to total, raise the rest. Yeah, but the total, and what I mean is that the private, I mean, if you're looking at ODA figures, private direct, but private direct investment is now seven times what total ODA is. Mm -hmm. Workers' remittances are two to three, depending how you're measuring. So it seems to me that, that, that there's a, a crisis brewing in the UN um, by relying totally uh, on ODA. The other thing is, after years of spending my life fighting against geographic quotas for undersecretary generals and secretary general, um, I, you know, I, I'm not going to fight for a gender quota. I mean, I, I'd be delighted if there were women on the 38th floor, but it seems to me that we have to get away from this notion that you know, peacekeeping is controlled by the, the French and the IMF is by the Europeans and we have to spread this around. So I'm less enthusiastic about your idea. Oh. Right, we'll take some more questions. Uh, all right, we'll take two there. Uh, people are popping up now, but we're going to run out of time, I'm afraid. There, and then the gentleman in front. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about reforms this evening of the UN, especially at the top here, from the P5 to the way it's managed by the US and the USDs. But there's a little talk about reforms at the field level, you know, in these missions. And my question is about going back to missions, for example, in Lebanon, Minnesota, or in the former mission of Afghanistan. That's been working in those missions for the last two decades. And, you know, the Israelis, the Americans think these missions are useless. Obviously, for the Israelis, they don't like the Nintendo. Lebanese, however, when I come into contact with them, my dad, they think that the Nintendo is so important to keeping the peace in that area. And I've seen these reports where, you know, on a daily basis, there are incidents occurring in, in those areas. And it has come down to the U.S. peacekeeping forces to mediate these small scale incidents to prevent them from polluting into large-scale conflict and outright war. So I'm just wondering, 
for the panel, are there a list of criteria or conditions or even the forms, for example, the implementation of an actual rules of engagement? Because as far as the UN peacekeepers are concerned, you know, they get targeted by everyone, from the Israelis to some other partisan or armed groups in the area, and they cannot fight back. So are reforms necessary <coughs> or will they undermine the spirit and the mandate of those missions themselves? Thank you. Thank you. In front. Uh, good evening, everyone. I am Surendra. I come from India and I am pursuing international law here as a Masters of Law student. And UN started for me quite some seven, eight years ago when I started taking part in Model UN. And when I started taking part after 60, 70 conferences, chairing, being a delegate, being an organizer, what I really realized was United Nations for the, especially the youth is nothing much more than an aspiration of value a hope, an optimistic light, which shows that yes, there can be solutions, you have to just think harder for the problems without passport. And that is why I believe, and I hopelessly, romantically believe that UN, in spite of what may people say at the age of 70, maybe senile, non-senile, <laughs> it is still working. The, the very fact we never had World War Three. Irrespective of the fact that we still have words like enemy states within the UN Charter, we still have access powers in the UN Charter, United Nations Security Council reformation again, again an anecdote, United Nations Security Council permanent membership was offered to India, which it graciously gave to China, and of course, okay. you make a mistake, so... <laughs> Going on, uh, what I feel and or rather what I believe is, sir, what, what, what is the suggestion as to why we cannot have that inclusiveness and diversity, what UN stands for? Why a person like Shashi Tharoor, who was there in the United Nations for almost 30 years, with a very illustrious career, he could not make it to the top job and was turned down in one of those votes by United Nations, or rather United Nations uh, Security Council, United States. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, the lady in the third row. Hi. Uh, Leslie Benjamori from uh, the Politics Department here at SOAS. I want to come back to this question of Security Council reform. I generally don't like to talk about it, but I think the tenor of the conversation is a little bit disturbing because I think the place to begin is a question of what the criteria should be. Historically, as we know, the criteria have really been, has been military power. Dan has suggested an alternative criteria, which is one to do with procedure and democratic procedure in particular. And the gentleman's comment in the back, I, I um, was actually not very sympathetic to. And, and the reason is that I think there is a very strong argument for having the United Kingdom on the Security Council if you think that a core criteria is leadership. Leadership um, comes down to, at least in one sense, having a society in which you have a free marketplace of ideas and the key components of that uh, consist of a robust civil society, a robust think tank center, and perhaps most importantly, a robust university sector. And if you look at most of the uh, ranking systems, the UK comes out number two on civil society, on think tanks, and on universities. So I think it's, it's worth thinking very clearly about whether or not leadership and soft power should be an element on which a criteria, a leading criteria for membership on the Security Council and not simply dismissing it out of hand. 
Okay, we'll, we'll get back a, a little into that. I'm, I'm afraid we are beginning to, to run out of time. So, Tom, do you want to say something about the criteria uh, for, for, for peacekeeping? Are there going to be reforms that will make a difference for peacekeeping? In peacekeeping. Um, well, there's, been a, there's a new report from June on peace operations, which looks remarkably like the report done by Brahimi in the year 2000, exactly. raising all of the same issues. And what's actually become more acute, in my view, is the, the, the kinds of conflicts where there is no peace to keep are, we used to call them new wars, they're no longer new 15 years later, but the, the situations in which peacekeepers find themselves are virtually untenable for the forces that are sent there. Adi, you mentioned kind of third world cannon fodder for uh, peace operations. Uh, if you just look at what's happened recently, I, I'm, ju I'm just thinking about, you know, bringing cholera to Haiti, sex for sale in Central African Republic, 42 soldiers killed in Mali. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it really does not make me feel comfortable about proceeding as we have proceeded for the last 15 years, because all of these proposals uh, were made 15 years ago, and virtually nothing has changed. Anybody else want to talk about security council reform? Um, <laughs> I think this, the... The, the single biggest change you could make in, in peacekeeping operations uh, that would make a difference on the ground uh, would be to really give uh, peacekeeping operations the, the capacity to actually protect civilians. Um, they're given a mandate to protect civilians, but they're not actually given uh, the tools and the capacity to do it. Uh, and so you see, uh, and it's partly about rules of engagement, but it's about a whole range of other things uh, uh, as well. Um, on this issue of Security Council reform, I really do think that if you're, if you're talking about criteria, to establish criteria which actually penalize countries that have not had the opportunity to put in place the governance mechanisms and the institutional frameworks um, uh, uh, over time that would help to deliver uh, uh, some of uh, uh, what you're talking about, I think that would be really problematic. Um, I really do. So, uh, um, I, and I actually do not agree that the UK exercises the soft power capacity that it has as effectively as it could. Um, I really don't. Yeah, I really find that on the question of Security Council reform, we have to look at it more broadly. This is about state building. You cannot have a situation where 75% of the work of the Security Council is about conflict, state-building issues in Africa, and their voice is so small, and you have these great powers which won the Second World War sitting there in judgment. It cannot be right. It's, not, it's, all, it's illegitimate, and it's not efficient, because those big powers might know how to solve problems in their own countries, but they cannot pretend that they will build the states of these countries. These countries need to have a voice as equal in order for them to emerge and build the strong states, peaceful states that, that, that they all aspire to. So for me, it's not even just a question of legitimacy, it's a question of efficiency. You cannot have efficient solutions that are foreign, that are coming from those who hold, who happen to hold more power, or who happen to have older states. 
and and who are also responsible for the destruction of the states of these countries that are still building their states. But I mean, yeah. So it's not justifiable. So I think that the, the case for UN reform is very strong. The criteria, I would totally disagree with your suggestion that you measure how free the civil society is and how free this one is. Again, you'll be measuring how long you have had opportunity to stabilize your country. And judging this one, whose country, whose state was destroyed long ago, and saying you don't have you, you don't deserve to be part of this decision making. It's wrong. It's just wrong. Dan, do you want to put anything down? <laughs> well, as we're moving to a close, I would say that uh, one of the key things I think I've learned from the historical side of this is that the founders were had very, very strong Asian, uh, African influence, that it was Brazilian, Venezuelan women delegates in committee who got equal rights in the charter. It wasn't a hand-me-down <coughs> from Eleanor Roosevelt. And that Asian and African agency at the time, I think we forget. Mm. And we forget that we are heirs to great people who gave us what we have today. I'm not playing down the defects but we need to, I think, realize the terrible circumstances that people were coming out of and had the vision to create what we have today, warts and all. And that should impel us, mm -hmm. I think, to demand more. And if we need any other lesson, I think it is, I'm not saying this is not 1913, it might be 1890, but the slide into serious interstate conflict we like to believe perhaps that there is some separate group of experts who, when it comes to World War III, they are, going, they are got out of a box and help manage the situation. There aren't. The people who gave us the Iraq War, the Afghan War, Ukraine, Georgia, are the same people who are in charge of the bomb. And this is a very serious thing that we as a population need to get hold of. The worst of it is that we are in this situation and people generally have forgotten it's like 1900, and everyone thinks there are no armies anymore. <laughs> that is the terrible danger that we, that we face. And we have had these, at least these last 15 years, certainly from the West, uh, Western leadership, a policy that neoliberal economics and militarism will bring peace. If there's one lesson from the founders, it is that human security was not an add-on invented in the 90s, but full employment equal rights were central to victory in that war and central to the recipe for the post-war order that we've enjoyed. And the idea, if they, the founders looked at the world today, they would simply wonder why we hadn't had world war already. Because at the time, mass unemployment and deregulated financial uh, markets and economies were regarded as a principal reason why we'd had World War II. And that is why one had the core founding documents of the Bretton Woods institutions. And there would be, I think, a tragedy the Greeks would appreciate if we stumble into the Third World War, having deliberately just tossed aside what we established at such huge cost in the previous century. 
Well, that's, I think, a good place to wrap up. We've tried from the expertise on this panel to illustrate for you some of the issues. We're not uh, going to, in 75 minutes, solve any of these questions. <laughs> but let me just leave you with a thought. The world is fragmenting because it's getting freer and people are very conscious of their own identity and want to preserve it in their own locality. You, particularly the younger generation, who understands so well and so immediately the concept of global issues, you like to act locally. When you want to get up and do something, you do it locally. The UN is there to resist the gravity of a fragmenting world. In previous eras, it didn't exist, and the world fragmented at those times. You have got to preserve what is in its charter and in its norms and principles and standards a very legitimate organization and in its human management begins to lose that legitimacy because governments go in a different direction. We're appealing particularly to the next generation to understand that the case for collective action has got to be made again and again and again because the natural tendency is to tribalism and fragmentation. You have got to resist that. And the UN exists for you to use to resist that. It's there, it works, if only governments and indeed global citizens insist that it should be used in the right way. So use tomorrow also, those of you who are coming to the seminar, to explore these issues further. But thank you for attending tonight. I uh, hope you go home to a nice dinner with these thoughts in your mind. And please express your appreciation for our wonderful panel. Podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>